If you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn again to Genesis chapter 3 and to begin uh, this morning introducing this theme for our fourth installment of the Not Invisible series. Uh, I want to take us back to 2015 to a major moment in the world, and, and this was an enormous moment in the world. It's so much so that uh, I think that everyone in the world was paying attention to this singular moment. And I want to use this video, if we have it ready, just to introduce this moment to you. So this is about a 20, 30 second video clip, and I'm going to stop it about halfway through to give you some context, but, but I just want to, I want to get you to tune into this first part of the video so that we can introduce the message theme for this morning. Would you play this video? Miss Universe 2015 is Columbia! All right, let's stop it here. Let's stop it here. Okay. The year's 2015. This is a video clip from the Miss Universe pageant. Now, Miss Universe pageant is where nations from around the world will elect or have a pageant and one representative between the ages of 18 and 27 to represent their nation in a pageant, a competition among the top beautiful woman from their nation Again, competing against all the other nations of the universe, and this is a pageant called Miss Universe. Now, to get to that point, you should understand that these young ladies between 18 and 27 years old, they started on their local level participating in pageants, and if they won a local pageant, then they were able to go to a city or a regional pageant, and if they won the city or regional pageant, then they were able to go and compete at a pageant for their state, and if they won the state-level pageant, then they were able to represent their state at the Miss America pageant. That's from the United States. They could represent their state at the Miss America pageant, and if they won the Miss America pageant, then they could go on and they could compete in the Miss Universe pageant. All right, so these young ladies have spent years preparing themselves for this pageant. Their parents, most likely, have spent thousands of dollars getting them ready to participate in these pageants. Their friends and, and their, their loved ones have invested in them year after year after year. And now they are, for those that participated in the Miss Universe pageant, they are on the grandest and highest scale platform that they will ever be able to reach. This is the top of the platform. And in 2015, the moment that you just watched, at the moment of its airing, there were 6.2 million people watching that one announcement in English. Now, there's a problem with that moment. Do any of you know what it is? The problem is that the host, Steve Harvey, he made a mistake. Would you play the remainder of the video? I have to apologize. The first runner-up is Columbia. Miss Universe 2015 is Philippines. Okay, there's a few idioms that we use to talk about embarrassing moments. Uh, you have egg on your face, you put your foot in your mouth, but here's one that I would like to use. There are moments when you wished you were purely invisible. And I think that Steve Harvey in that moment, 
He stood up, he apologized, and he made the right announcement. But I think that there was a moment, and probably for the months following that, that he wished he was absolutely invisible. He announced the wrong person as the winner of Miss Universe, and that poor woman who actually won, missed her moment of being crowned and paraded in front of all of those people. And it was all Steve Harvey's fault. Now in this sermon today, we're, we're gonna have a slight shift. In the first three installments of this six-part series, we've talked about instances where people wondered if they were invisible to God because they were either being crowded out by people they were facing, debilitating or difficult circumstances, or they were just wondering because everyone else seemed to neglect them if God even saw them in the midst of their misery. But today, the shift that we want to take is not, does God see me? But we want to shift to the times, looking at the times where we wished God couldn't see us. You know, because there's always times where because of our shame and our guilt that we wished we were invisible. Now, we're going to look at the fall of man. And before we jump into this message, I need us to take just a moment as a church family to talk about something that must be dealt with. In these past few weeks and in the weeks coming up, the next few months, particularly today, we need to be mindful that God is doing something incredible through the preaching and teaching of his word and the life of the local church, and the enemy is very unhappy about it. The psychologists or counselors, sometimes when they're trying to help someone find the complexity to whatever problem they're facing, they'll take it back to its roots. They'll go back maybe even to childhood and see if they can find the origins of the problem to help alleviate or find the solutions for the contemporary playing out of the problem. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to find the moment where the guilt started in our lives and in the circumstances and the brokenness of relationships. And we're going to pinpoint that so that we can find the ultimate resolve. Now, I need to warn you that the enemy is not happy about this because we are going to expose from the beginning all of his schemes and tactics. And you should be aware, whether you sense it or not, you should be aware that the enemy wants to disrupt this message and he wants to disrupt your heart and your mind and our church from arriving at the conclusions that we are going to preach from this pulpit today. And you should know that our aim is to be people who live lives pleasing to God and the enemy wants to do anything he can to disrupt it. And some of the things that he'll do to disrupt the church from arriving at the place that the Lord wants us is he will seek during these services, during these sermons, he'll seek to make your minds distracted by things that are going on around you. Sometimes the distraction is just that you're tired or you have worries or thoughts from outside of this sanctuary that are coming into this place and they're causing you to be uh, distracted or out of place. You're physically present, but you're mentally, emotionally, and uh, psychologically, you're somewhere else. Sometimes what the Lord will do is 
or not the Lord, but sometimes what the enemy will do is he'll try to distract you with things that you have preferences about in the sermons or in the service. And you'll say, well, uh, this is a good sermon, but I don't really like this about this or that about that person. And you'll think, uh, I'm just going to entertain those thoughts of preference. And that is what the enemy will do to distract you. And when you entertain those ideas of preferences, rather than being tuned into the preaching and teaching of God's word, you're playing into the enemy's hands. And I'll tell you, one of the ways that the enemy will use God's people to distract others of God's people from being focused on what God is doing is by tempting God's people to entertain preferences and then to lead them to the point where they think that they have the authority or whether or not they have the privilege to share those opinions with other people. And so I just want to tell you just just right out of the gate, because it is a repeated history within churches, when God is moving, the enemy is unhappy. And one of the things that the enemy will do time and time again to disrupt a church is to use church people to express their opinions about things that have nothing to do with what God is doing in an effort to distract God's people from seeing God do an amazing work. And so I'm just going to say it flat out. When we as people, this is the tactic that gets played out time and time again. When we as people feel tempted to gossip and we participate in gossip, we are playing into the enemy's hands and we are no longer participating in the kingdom work as God's agents. We're now participating in the kingdom work as the enemy's agents. And I'm not just talking about gossiping about things that are in the church. I'm talking about gossiping about things that are outside of the church. And this is the most, and I'm bringing it up because this is the most common disruption within bodies of people. And so I just want to challenge you because I don't want you to miss out on what God is doing in your life or in the life of this church. I want to challenge you that when you feel tempted or when you feel compelled just to talk, don't do it. Just don't. You will be better for it. And so will those around you. Now we have the warning. I want us to jump into a word of prayer before we jump into this because again, I believe that you are the best, you are the best church ever. I am biased to you and unapologetic about it. You are the best church ever and I am so hungry to see God continue to work in your life. I just want us to go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we jump into the message. Would you join me? God, I pray over your church in my church. God, these are people that you bought with your blood because you love them so much. And I, Father, as a pastor, Father, as a pastor, I am so absolutely thankful that I get to be among these people. Lord, we're asking for your spirit to move heavily among us. And and Lord, all of the moving that you're doing in our life as you grow us through singing praises to you and grow us through preaching of your word. Father, I pray that the enemy would have no authority in here and I pray that the enemy would have no power here. So Lord, would you save us as a people from the temptation of letting him have a foothold? Father, would you save us and preserve us in your goodness and in your grace? And Lord, I pray that not only would you save us and preserve us, but I pray that now during these sacred moments, that you would protect our hearts and protect our minds and protect our bodies. Because ultimately, God, our aim is to be in relationship with you and we want to do what is pleasing to you. And so help us, God, because we can't do it unless you help us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If we look, I've got a chart for you. We talk about the moments where we wished we were invisible, and I want us to consider why is it that we wished that we were invisible? And so I've got a chart expressing, because sometimes we want to be invisible because of shame or because of guilt, uh, but really we need to look at what the cause is instead of focusing entirely on the effects. So if we have this chart that we've produced, I want to show it to you. Do we have that ready to fire? Here we go. So the reason that we want to be invisible, the reason that we we feel ashamed is because of, sometimes we'll start in the lower right quadrant with shame and we'll think that that's the problem, but that's not the problem. The problem is sin And because of sin, we have guilt. Now, guilt can be divided into two veins. We have judicial guilt and we have relational guilt. The judicial guilt is because we've broken the law and the commands of God, we are guilty before God. We are guilty before holiness. And as a result, we will have condemnation in and on our life. Now, the other vein of guilt is the relational, and this is where we have a sense of shame and embarrassment. Now, oftentimes, what we will experience, and we're going to see it today in the text, what we'll experience is we'll experience the shame before we recognize the condemnation. Because oftentimes, God is, right or wrong, God is less than we think about ourselves, and because there's relational discomfort or relational tension uh, through the exposure of our sins, we experience shame and focus in on shame rather than thinking about the condemnation. And if the enemy can keep us focused on the shame and how we can repair our shame or alleviate our shame, then he'll keep us from focusing on the more important matters related to this subject, which is, number one, identifying our judicial guilt and ultimately rectifying or resolving sin, which causes all that follows. But the enemy wants to keep us from focusing on that. Now let's look at Genesis chapter three and I just want to elaborate that chart and those findings that we've just presented to you before we jump into the salvation part of the story. So again, we're just gonna move very quickly through this passage in the first eight verses. The serpent is on hand now. He's more crafty than any other beast. He says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman responded to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you even touch it lest you die. So in other words, God set the standard straight. You must not eat or touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, then you you will die, okay? That's the standard. That's the standard. Now we jump forward in the passage or we continue in the passage. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be tempted and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So they have the temptation. There's nothing broken when temptation's there. Temptation's not the sin. It's the acting on the temptation. She took it, she ate, she handed it to her husband and what did he do? He ate. Who's guilty? 
Both of them. Now we move forward in the text. She took of its fruit, verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So let's go back to the chart very quickly. Because we have to understand this. If we go back to the chart where we look at sin, their first recognition was not of their judicial guilt. Their first recognition was of their relational guilt, which brought shame. Their eyes were open and they didn't like what they saw. Their eyes were open and they didn't like what they were seeing. And so what did they try to do? Rather than trying to deal with the problem, they tried to deal with the effects that came from the results of the problem. And they tried to cover themselves to alleviate the discomfort that came from their shame, from their relational guilt. But then in verse eight, God comes on the scene. And this is one of the first theophanies, one of the first appearings of God in such a way that humans can recognize. Because we know that God is the creator, as the one uncreated being, we know that he has the ability to transcend and to interact within this created world. But unless he reveals himself in a specific way, we have no capability or capacity to recognize him. This is one of the first instances when he's walking through the garden in the cool of the day. This is one of the first times where God in the scripture is revealing himself in a human recognizable way. And it's at the moment where they're confronted with God's presence that they recognize their judicial guilt. And so what do they do? Because they have relational shame, they try to cover it with fig leaves, and now they have the judicial guilt, they recognize their condemnation before a holy God. What do they do? They try to hide themselves behind a variant of the very sin that they participated in. And that's so commonplace. When we wished we were invisible to God, so often we'll go and try to hide behind the sin that we committed that broke our relationship with God. We'll try to hide behind it. I mean, we think about in this contemporary day with, with men and women who are caught up in, uh, in immoral online activity. And when they're ashamed of the guilt that they feel because they're participating in illicit and explicit adult activities online, rather than allowing God to convict them and draw them out of that, they just jump right back into it as if they can hide behind their sin. That's exactly what Adam and Eve are doing here. And so this is what God says. There's always these powerful questions in verse nine. But the Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Those potent God questions have been a common denominator in all of these sermons. See, God wasn't asking him, where are you? Because God didn't know where he was. God was asking him, where are you? Because God loved him enough to draw him out of hiding. When we face conviction, those moments where we think, if I could just be invisible. When we face conviction, that conviction, the enemy will make us think that God is trying to press us down and push us out. But really what God is doing is he's trying to draw us out into himself. See, if God was just done with us, he would have never asked you where you are. But God is not finished with you. Rather, God is very interested in having you to himself so that he can provide for you what you couldn't provide for yourself. 
And so we read on in verse nine, God says, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? There's only one way to know that you're naked. And it's from eating of the fruit. There's only one way to have guilt and shame, and that is because you're guilty of sin. Now, those of you who are counselors like psychologists, there is a difference between objective guilt and subjective guilt. Just to note here, we're not getting deep into this. Objective guilt is when you are actually guilty of sin. Subjective guilt is when you perceive guilt either because of circumstances or challenges, whereas you may be the victim. We're not talking about instances of subjective guilt. Here we're talking exclusively about an instance of objective guilt. These people are actually guilty. The reason they know they're naked is because they are guilty of sin. The man said, now we get into one of the complications of sin, which is that we try to flight from reality and we try to pass on the guilt to someone else. The man says in verse 12, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So Adam says first, whose fault is it? It's her fault. Not only is it her fault, it's your fault, God. If you wouldn't have given me this woman, then I wouldn't have had her around me to tempt me into sin. Man, if somebody could just put up on the side of his uh, refrigerator, happy wife, happy life, because he's missing it here. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, it that, what is this that you have done? The woman said, well, it was the serpent who made me do it. So she's passing fault too. It's not my fault. It's his fault. And so in verses 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, and this is a verse in scripture that you want to underline because it is what we call the proto-evangelium, the first glimpse of the gospel. It is a promise of the gospel to come. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the day is coming when there will be one, a man from the seed of a woman who will come and he will put to an end what you have started right here in this garden. This is the first glimpse, the first glimmer of the gospel that we have in all of the recorded Bible. And it begins pointing to the point on Calvary. Now the woman, Eve is present for this. Adam is present for this conversation. Everyone's in the room. This is an all hands on deck meeting that God is having with the serpent, with the man and the woman. They're all hearing all of this. The woman has no idea what this means, but make, make certain that you understand the devil, the serpent, he knows completely what the father's talking about. He knows that his days are limited at this point. In verse 16, the, in verse 16, the Lord gives a judgment to the woman. And in verse 17, the Lord gives a judgment to the man. And we read down into verse 20 and, and we jump to some conclusions where the Lord is beginning to cover their sins. Verse 20, the man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And in verse 21, here is one of the other most powerful passages of scripture. And the Lord God made for Adam 
and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now pay attention here. In verse 15, we have the promise of the gospel. And in verse 21, we have a picture of the gospel. In verse 15, we have the promise of the gospel that that there will be a man who comes from the seed of the woman and he will bruise this serpent. He will crush the serpent who is crawling on his belly. He will crush him once and for all. And then we get to verse 21 and we see not just the promise of the gospel, but we see the picture of the gospel. The picture of the gospel is what God will do through that man to give us covering. Remember, when we look at this chart, go again to the sin chart. So important that we remember this, okay? We are exposing the enemy here. Oftentimes, what we do because we have been exposed and because we see now and don't like what we see, we'll focus on the shame and we'll do whatever we can to alleviate the shame that we experience. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They got some fig leaves, they sewed them together and they made covering trying to cover up their shame. The problem with what they were trying to do is it took care of the relational shame, but it wasn't dealing with the cause of the problem. This is the equivalent of having cancer. Cancer that is eating up your body and it results in you having these terrible migraines so you put a Band-Aid on the outside of your hand. It doesn't do any good. Maybe for a moment it makes you feel better. I mean, that's what we do with my kids when they're hurt or something. We'll put a Band-Aid on it. And suddenly my children are like, it's fantastic. I'm like, no, it's just a Band-Aid. But what God does in verse 21 is he goes to the root of the problem. He goes to the root of the problem. He says, you know what? The only thing that's really going to take care of this problem is if there's a sacrifice that provides a long-lasting eternal covering. Now, I want to show you theologically what's happening here. There's another chart that I have for you. We have the sin chart, and I want to show you the salvation chart. It's very similar, but it plays out in a complete way. We have no longer sin, but now, verse 21, we see a salvation. That salvation plays out in what we call atonement. Atonement means to cover. Now, theologically, here's a word that we we have to understand. And if you're a Christian, I challenge you to understand this word and make it a part of your vocabulary, substitutionary atonement. The reason that you should hold on to substitutionary atonement is that you are betting your eternity on it. You're betting your eternity on the fact that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and then he was the substitute for you on the cross. Because of your sin and your judicial guilt, you deserved condemnation and damnation. You deserve to die on the cross for your sins. But Jesus substituted himself in. Substitutionary atonement. He covered your debt. And as a result... No longer do we have judicial and relational problems, but now because the death of Jesus Christ in his body, he satisfies the sin debt. He took care of the judicial debt that you had. He satisfied and eased the judicial guilt between you and God because you had broken the law. His body paid the price. In verse 21, we see in order for God to put a covering on the people, someone or something had to be sacrificed. Something had to die. 
In the Gospels, Jesus Christ is that sacrifice. But it wasn't just the judicial guilt that the sacrifice covers, the atonement covers, but it's also the relational guilt. We have covering once and for all through Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed on Calvary. We have covering that not only covers our sins, but it washes them away once and for all. And in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, when the enemy comes on the scene, it doesn't take but 21 verses for God to say how he's going to take the enemy off the scene. Now, here's the good news for you, church. The good news for you is that God has a plan. And in the moments when you wished you were invisible, in the moments when you wished you were invisible, God calls you out and he doesn't call you out in a way to expose your sin even more, but he calls you out so that you could come in and you could receive the gift that he offers you to deal with it once and for all. He's not saying come out from behind the tree that you're hiding so that I can expose you to the world. He's saying, will you come out here so that I can clothe you with eternal salvation? Oh, if we could just get to the point Oh, if we could simply get to the point where we stopped trying to hide from God and we willingly, eagerly, and joyfully came out from our shame and our guilt and we said, God, I trust that the only covering that is sufficient for me is the one that you provide. Will you do a work in me? How much better would life be if instead of trying to hide, You just responded to God sooner than later. There was a a story because shame and guilt make us do silly things. There was a story of a man. We don't know his name. It was anonymous. He He had checked out two books from the library when he was in high school. And he failed to take them back. And he kept those books for 50 years. I can't, I'm surprised he could keep up with them for 50 years. After 50 years, he wrote a note. Listen, this is so fantastic. This happened in Phoenix. After 50 years to the date, he wrote a note and mailed it to the library at his old high school and included with that note were the two books and a check for $1,000. And he sent those books and he sent that check and he sent that note and he says, I can't stand it any longer. I owe this money and these books to the school and so I want to pay my debt. I can imagine the school was like, you know, you could just keep them. We, We don't need them. But he couldn't stand it any longer. And I wonder if that's true about you or someone here that you just can't stand it any longer. You're tired of hiding from God. You're tired of feeling like you need to be invisible and you just can't stand it any longer. What I want to let you know that when God calls you and says, where are you? He's not saying that because he wants to make a fool of you. He's saying that because he wants to make a saint of you. He wants to cover you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, And he wants to give you once and for all freedom from the enemy's temptations and sins. So would you today receive Jesus as your savior? Would you come out of hiding? Would you say, I want to be saved? I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward.
And I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand where you are. Our ministers, you can make your way to your positions if you're helping us with the invitation. If you're on the prayer team, go ahead and make your way forward. Listen, church, I'm I'm just so convinced that God is doing something. There has been this, this eerie sense of spiritual warfare kind of circulating. And I've heard it from some other folks and I've sensed it myself. God is up to something incredible and I want us all to be a part of it. I really do. And so right now, if the Lord is impressing upon your heart to respond, do it. Step out, step forward, and just watch what God can do when you get out from behind the trees. You'll be amazed at how he satisfies, how he sanctifies, and how he saves. Well, lead us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to move into our invitation. Father, we thank you that you allow us to know these truths God, again, my prayer earlier in this message and even this morning and last night is, God, would you protect us and bring us out of this, this, this swirling of warfare? God, there are some people in this room that you want to deliver from sin. And I believe, God, that the reason you want to deliver them is because their, their lives have eternal value. So you're not playing around. And Lord, my prayer is that your conviction would be heavy on us so that we wouldn't play around either, but that we would take this moment serious. Father, I pray that the man or the woman, maybe a family, maybe a teenager that is being convicted of something in particular, maybe it is lostness and they need to be saved. Maybe there's something else going on in their life or the lives of someone that's near and dear to them that is breaking their heart. Lord, I pray that they would respond either by coming and taking me or one of our ministers by the hand or maybe they come and take one of our prayer members by the hand or Lord, maybe you just lead them in a very public and bold way to come forward and to kneel at the altar and to seek your help. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for providing ahead of time salvation to all who would receive it. Help us now in Jesus' name, amen.